Only about four in 10 people in America believe in what we might commonly call spiritual beings. But what if we've categorically misunderstood what spiritual means? What if we considered the biblical language of cosmic principalities and powers and compared it to things a lot of Americans might believe in, like systematic racism, climate change, the deep state, or even the stock market? Is there any commonality? And how might the fantasy worlds created by J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis open us up to a reality that isn't merely fiction and invite us to see that we truly are immersed in a cosmic drama. My name's Paul Anleitner, and thanks for listening to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning-making. Recently, I was struck by a conversation, a recorded conversation between behavioral scientist, Dr. John Verveke, and pastor slash popular YouTube theologian, my friend, Paul Vanderclay we had just on for a discussion in the episode right before this one. Vanderclay and Verveke's conversation along with J.P. Marceau was really, really um, provoking and interesting. And in particular, there was a section towards the end of their conversation where they, they veered into a discussion about what explanatory usefulness the concept of God has anymore when a naturalist framework seems to have closed so many of the explanatory gaps in understanding, uh, the, the understanding that we have about the causal workings of our world that, that God once occupied, especially before the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution. Now, ignoring for a moment the thesis I've laid out on several occasions before about why I think it's fair to say that everyone believes in God, you can go back a few episodes to hear a... Um, to hear that thesis and its full explanation and argument, I, I really thought that their respectful engagement together was, was very thought-provoking. And in particular, in this section, towards the end of their conversation, I was really struck by Verveke's mentioning of hyper-objects as a possibly analogous way of framing what Christians and other theistic traditions might normally frame as spiritual forces or miraculous occurrences. Now, I, I actually, as I think about it, I'm not entirely sure that that's what Verveke intended to communicate, as it was really a, a passing comment in the tail end of a nearly two-hour conversation. And you sometimes, when you have extended conversations about such co complex ideas, you know, at a certain point, your stamina might break down, and you, who knows, maybe even my own listening and attention span might have been breaking down at a particular point. But regardless of that, regardless of that, whether or not that was his intended uh, communicative intent, it was something that I had been chewing on for a bit and wanted to process. I thought it would be worth processing together. Um, and, and I think it has value in, in public exploration and discussion in this medium here. So first of all, for those of you not familiar with the concept of hyperobjects, I, I don't blame you. It's, it's a concept that wouldn't be talked about in many church circles. I know the vast majority of you who listen are coming from a Christian background of some stripe or kind. So you wouldn't hear of this term hyperobjects in theological circles. In fact, it's not used that frequently in, in you know, 
philosophical circles other than the a more object-oriented uh, ontology schools of thought, which, you know, again, if you've done an undergrad philosophy class, hyperobjects probably hasn't come up. So let's, first, let's talk a little bit about this concept of hyperobjects and how it actually may be helpful to us as we try to wrestle with this very ancient idea of spiritual principalities and powers that we Christians typically read about in our, in our biblical literature and seem pretty central to the biblical narrative making sense. Hyperobjects, so this, this term was first coined by Rice University professor and author Timothy Morton, and he used it to describe objects, and I'm, I'm using that with, in air quotes, that are are so massively distributed throughout location and time that we can't point to them as a singular object in any singular location and say something like, well, there it is, and there, there it is. That, that's all of it right there in that single, single location. Verveke used the example in his conversation with Paul Vanderclay and J.P. Marceau of the East India Trading Company and evolution as examples of hyper-objects. But other common examples of hyperobjects would be something like climate change, which is one of the things that Timothy Morton uses as his primary example of what he means when he uses the term hyperobjects. Or you could also use the term the stock market as another example. You know, with the stock market, you can cite examples of the stock market's activities. You can participate in the stock market. But you can't point to a single entity in a single bounded location and say, there, that's all of the object we call the stock market, right? It's beyond that. It's beyond a singular object in a singular location. It's a hyper object. In Morton's book, The Ecological Thought, Morton describes what he believes are the shared characteristics that make something a hyper object. So he gives four uh, I'm sorry, five characteristics, all right? Five characteristics. I won't use the exact terminology. I'm going to try to summarize what these five characteristics are because I think this is really, really fascinating. I think it's fascinating because I actually think even in our Western modern framework, most people believe in the existence of hyperobjects. Um, even if they might not believe in the sorts of biblical language of principalities and powers, cosmic forces, etc. So as we go through these, I want you to even take note of how, and we'll talk about this as we explore some examples in the biblical literature, I want you to take note of how these characteristics of hyperobjects might be applicable to traditional Christian and traditional theistic notions in even uh, Judaism and Islam and in other non-Western cultures of what a spiritual force or entity or power, whether or not there's a shared overlapping point of integration between these concepts. So for Morton, a hyperobject shares these characteristics. First, hyperobjects, what he, he describes it as glue themselves to whatever they come in contact with. He, there's a sort of tangled web that uh, once you come into contact with this hyperobject, it seems to stick to you, just even if you resist it. 
Secondly, hyperobjects are so massive that they transcend the normal confinements of space-time that other objects must adhere to. So, for example, a basketball isn't a hyperobject. You could point to a particular basketball and say that there it is. You can point to it in a point on the space-time continuum, and, and you'd be able to identify it. Hyperobjects aren't like that. They are so massive that they transcend the normal confinements of space-time that other objects have to adhere to. The third characteristic is that hyperobjects are non-local. So, for example, changes in climate may increase the production of hurricanes. And while you may be in a particular location experiencing a hurricane, your local experience of that hurricane isn't a complete picture of the hyperobject we might refer to as climate change. All right. And I want to set aside, I know that, you know, listeners of all different kinds, especially knowing the demographic, people that listen to this program are um, within the Christian tradition and knowing the overlapping suspicion in many Christian traditions about human made uh, climate change. I, I would like to set that aside and have you not got, get hung up on that. I'm using this primarily because this is what Morton uses as his example, all right? So if you can set that aside and not turn this off and go, I don't believe in climate change, I, I, I'm not trying to have that discussion or argument with you right now. I'm not a scientist. So again, the third characteristic of a hyperobject is that it's non-local similar to what we might say is, you know, climate change, right? A hurricane that um, may be increased, again, with this theory, is that there is an increased uh, experience, increased phenomena of hurricanes that might happen in the Gulf Coast and in Florida or hit the, uh, the you know, the Atlantic because of climate change. But you cannot point to a hurricane that's hitting the Gulf Coast and say, there it is. That's all of it. That is climate change. No, climate change is non-local. It's a hyper object. The fourth characteristic is that hyper objects operate on a higher dimensional plane, which is a very interesting framing of uh, use of language that I do want to kind of come back to at the end of this episode. The fifth characteristic of a hyperobject, according to Morton, Timothy Morton, was that hyperobjects are formed via a networking together of smaller related objects, which might seem like a paradox at first. How can hyperobjects be formed by a networking of smaller related objects and yet they are non-local. They are transcendent of confinement, space-time confinements. It doesn't make sense. But let's think of some of these examples and see how this actually this this isn't uh, this isn't non-contradictory. That it, we can actually see how this works. That a formed network of smaller related objects can make up something that transcends their smaller parts. So we could stick with the uh, with Morton's example of climate change, right? Let's take that as an example. We could say that factors like the sun, human pollution, or or even let's say the production of methane by cows. These are all smaller objects, if we can call them objects that that we could point to, and 
and, and say, yeah, that's the sun. <laughs> that is, um, here are, here's some pollution that we could point to taking place in Los Angeles, or we could point to a field of cows and say, look, those cows are producing methane. All right. We can point to those objects. Those objects in and of themselves are not climate change, but when networked together, they may form a causal relationship to climate change. The evidence of this hyperobject's existence can also be demonstrable in multiple locations or via multiple paths of evaluation. So it's not just that there is the... Uh, these things network together, create climate change as a hyper object. The hyper object climate change also has demonstrable evidence across multiple locations. And there, there's evidence of it across multiple paths of evaluation. So for example, you could examine changes in global temperature, melting polar ice caps, etc. as an demonstrable evidence of the hyper object's existence. So it's, it's not like a cow farting in Wisconsin or a glacier melting in the Arctic could be pointed to as singular events and go there, that right there, in that particular location, that's climate change. That wouldn't be the hyper object. That would be evidence of the existence of the hyper object. Simultaneously, our inability to point to a singular object in a singular space-time coordinate doesn't mean that the hyper-object doesn't exist. No reasonable person could deny the existence of the stock market, even though you can't point to a singular point in time and space and go, there, there it all is. That's all of the stock market. The stock market exists. <laughs> even though you can't point to it, you can't grasp all of the stock market with your hands, you couldn't take a, a giant tape measure and, and, and measure the size of the stock market. We have different ways of measuring the activity in the stock market. We can participate in it, we can see evidence of it, but you can't point to one singular thing and go, there it is, right? That doesn't if, because you can't do that does not deny the reality of the stock market's existence. Interestingly enough, Morton even assigned agency to these hyper objects. Quote, and this is coming from his, um, the aforementioned book, The Ecological Thought, on page 30, Morton writes, quote, hyper objects are agents. They are indeed more than a little demonic in the sense that they appear to straddle worlds and times like fiber optic cables or electromagnetic fields, and they are demonic in that through them causalities flow like electricity." End quote. Have you ever been somewhere where you felt a tangible, palpable shift in what you might say is the atmosphere of the room or the location where you were? It's like something shifted, a tension that you can, as we might commonly say, you could reach out and cut with a knife. I remember back in 2008, one of 
the most clear experiences in my recollection of experiencing something tangible in the atmosphere that was oppressive, malevolent, chaotic, you know, as a as someone who grew up in the charismatic and Pentecostal tradition, as many of you are aware of, I, you know, would frequently have experiences I could point to and say I felt the something that I would have described as the presence of God. But the, the presence of something malevolent, I don't have as many that I can recall, except for back in 2008, a distinct memory I have. In 2008, when the Republican National Convention was hosted here in Minnesota, I went down with a local parachurch organization that was giving away waters to people on the streets on those hot summer days, and we'd go out and sing hymns and songs of worship, uh, songs of worship on the street in hopes that our actions would, what we were calling, especially in that charismatic framework, quotes, uh, shift the atmosphere. Because what was happening, if you, some of you are old enough to recall, is that uh, similar to what we maybe have seen in the past year with the shift from, you know, maybe peaceful protests and a moment's notice is erupting into violent looting and destruction of property. There was sort of the beginnings of that happening in 2008 outside of the Republican National Convention in St. Paul. Anyone walking around the Excel Center in St. Paul could feel a palpable tension in the air. There was anarchists and rioters who had created some really chaotic situations, and, and, and police had rained down tear gas on the troublesome crowd, and some of which the people in my um, parachurch party that I was out with at that time was, were giving the water bottles, what we had brought just to simply give away to people to drink, now were being used to help people wash out their eyes from tear gas. Then it seemed like each day down there, the, the tension in the air was growing thicker and thicker. I can, I, it was palpable. I'll never forget it. It was like you could you could reach out and, and feel this explosive, heavy, and angry energy among the crowd. Did you need to be a Christian or a theist to feel that tangible weight? No, I think, you know, you could talk to many people down there that could feel that very weightiness of something in the air. Was this the manifest presence or activity of something akin to a hyperobject? Does Morton's and possibly Verveke's conception of hyperobjects map on to the ancient Christian notion of principalities and powers, or spiritual forces such as angelic or demonic legions? And if there is harmony, how central is it to Christians or non-reductive materialists like Verveke to accept these agents as real causal forces and to not just naively dismiss their existence as being the superstitious thinking of a pre-enlightenment dark age. I think many of us who even have the most basic cursory knowledge of the New Testament are aware of Jesus's record of casting out demons. That's, that's captured throughout the Gospels, which as again, as a side note, is a pretty new phenomenon in the scriptures if you're to read it cover to cover. You don't see a bunch of that in the Old Testament, which 
will have to be a discussion for another time. But in more recent years, even though people have been well aware of this activity in the Gospels, there's been a revival of interest among biblical scholars and theologians into the language that the Apostle Paul uses to possibly denote cosmic, non-temporal, and non-spatial forces that affect both human behavior and even the natural world, if I can impose anachronistically, uh, impose a modern concept onto the ancient author, that, that Paul seems to use and to believe and point to cosmic, non-temporal, non-spatial forces that don't just affect human behavior, but even affect the natural world. This renewed interest is commonly referred to as the apocalyptic Paul or apocalyptic Paul readings. Now, you know, if you spend any amount of time in Protestant circles and evangelical circles, you know, especially those on the more Baptist or Reformed ends of the denominational spectrum, you're, you probably are really well aware of how Paul's letters in the New Testament are commonly read. They, they tend to have, as people try and sit down and read Paul's letters, they tend to have this sort of post-Reformation focus, which again was, uh, uh, I think, really helpful and good contribution. I'm not anti-reform or anti-reformation. I just want to make that clear. But those of you that have been spent any amount of time in those environments, you are well aware of the focus of reading Paul with this emphasis on the sorts of legal requirements necessary for an individualistic experience of salvation. Advocates, though, of the, the apocalyptic Paul movement, they, they try to highlight what they believe has been the neglected di dimensions of Paul's theology surrounding cosmic spiritual powers. To zero in on some examples of this in Paul's writings, let's explore some of the, the brilliant observations that the New Testament scholar Beverly Roberts Gaventa has. Um, she's just one of several scholars focused on this apocalyptic Paul reading, and she's got some brilliant insights that um, she uses. And I'll, I'm going to post the um, a great article uh, from her, a, a, a wonderful article. I'm going to post it on Patreon for those of you that are supporters on Patreon so that you can download and read. You'll have to you know, deal with my highlighting in that, um, but I thought it'd be a really helpful tool for you guys to go through. But she brings out, along with many other apocalyptic Paul-focused New Testament scholars, how the Apostle Paul uses the Greek word harmartia, which is translated as sin, and how Paul uniquely uses that word in the book of Romans in a way that we don't often give enough attention to. Paul uses that word harmartia or variations of that word 81 times throughout his letters. Of those 81 times, 60 of them are found in his epistle to the Romans. So I think that would be a, maybe a really helpful place instead of just going through a massive New Testament survey of Pauline epistles and writings to just maybe zero in a little bit here on Paul's use of harmartia in his epistle to the Romans. 
In many basic Protestant evangelical readings of Romans, when one comes across that word harmartia, translated as sin, they might typically think of sin as just a negative or a harmful action that an individual does. Like, I sinned the other day when I, you know, cussed out my neighbor, right? I sinned the other day when I did this. It's used as an action verb. But what we frequently find in Romans is that sin, that harmartia, is used as a noun by the Apostle Paul. For example, in Romans 5.12, Paul says that sin came into the world, or in uh Chapter, that same chapter, chapter 5, verse 21, says that sin exercised dominion. Now, those are just a couple examples. As Gaventa argues in that 2004 article, again, you can find it. I'm going to post it on Patreon after posting this podcast. In Romans, quote, in Romans in particular, sin is sin with a capital S, not a lowercase transgression not even a human disposition or flaw in human nature, but an uppercase power that enslaves humankind and stands over against God. Here, sin, again, she's using a capital S, is among those anti-God powers whose final defeat the resurrection of Jesus Christ inaugurates and guarantees, end quote. Sin, again, with a capital S, is presented in Romans as the slave master of humanity. See Romans 6. The relationship between sin and enslaved humanity is even given a backstory in Romans. Paul explains it as the the effects of when the wicked suppress the truth and people settle for created things as the telos of their heart's desire instead of the creator. You can see that in Romans 1. And Paul links the, the activity and the dominion of sin to the result of a, you know, a cosmic level fall by Adam. These are things that are activities, right? That the wicked suppressing the truth and settling for created things instead of their creator. This is an activity not bound to just a single location, but part of a networked interaction across space-time. God turns them over, God turns humanity over because of the wicked suppressing of the truth. God turns the wicked over to the power of sin. And sin, according to Paul, brings with it a sort of a tag team partner, we could say. Sin brings with it the tag team partner named death. Perhaps one of the most scandalous claims by the Apostle Paul, especially as you realize Paul is a Jew, and he's writing to an audience in Rome that evidently has a significant number of Jews in their community, and they're trying to reconcile and work through this Jew-Gentile dynamic. One of the most scandalous claims by Paul is that sin was cosmically potent enough to even use the law, to use the Torah that was delivered to Moses by God, to use that as a weapon that brings death and can even enslave people, further enslave people to sin. That is such a scandalous, radical idea. God gave Moses the law, right? 
The law is the central feature of the Jewish community. And here Paul is, as a Jew, writing to at least a significant number of Jews saying, this is how powerful that cosmic sin was. It was powerful enough to even use the law, the law God gave to Moses. It could even use that as a weapon that brings death and enslaves people further to its power. Crazy, right? So this is a cosmic power. This is not you fibbing or stealing a candy bar. And I don't want to minimize the activity of sin made manifest in people's lives. This isn't an instance of adultery. This isn't a singular instance of murder. It's a cosmic force. In what ways does this cosmic power of sin bear the characteristic qualities of Morton's hyper-objects? Can we find a a point of integration here? Does it map on in any way? Well, the glue effect of this hyper-object, right, that was one of the characteristics of hyper-objects, according to Morton, is this glue effect is definitely present. The glue effect is even so strong in this hyper-object that it can even attach itself to something that was good, like the law, and bring it under its power. Also, Sin certainly transcends space-time with evident effects everywhere, but no singular bounded location to point to and say, there it is, that's all of it. Like Morton's example of climate change, cosmic sin does not exist apart from the networked interaction of human agents. I think sin in the cosmic sense, the principality and power of sin, meets these characteristic qualifications of Morton's hyper-objects. We can even see in Romans 8 that Paul personifies creation itself, perhaps maybe even as a non-evil hyper-object. That's an interesting thought worth exploring too in the way that he uses creation. Creation as not necessarily even just the the object of something God has acted and, and created and brought about, but creation as its own agent with its own apparently sentient feelings and emotions. We see in Romans 8, Paul says that creation, quote, waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Continuing on, Paul says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. Okay, pause for a second. Again, hyper-object language, agency, creation not having a choice in the matter. But uh, going on here, continuing on. But by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God, end quote. It seems that just as humanity played some networked role in the formation of the cosmic hyper-object known as sin, humanity is also called to participate in its defeat and to even liberate nature itself from its bondage to these powers. We might even consider the networked community of the people of God, the church, that which Paul calls the body of Christ as a hyper-object too. 
in this way, it might even be helpful. This, this, this notion of hyperobjects might be helpful in unlocking uh, maybe a more healthy and even a more ancient way of considering what the church was and is. Because in this way, the, the church isn't a particular building, obviously, and it's not reducible to one particular people located in a particular coordinate in space-time. Rather, the church, as the body of Christ, is much more like a distributed system, which, if I can borrow that term from the world of computer programming networking, it it functions like a network of different computers who coordinate their diverse actions across time and space through shared messages. I think that's a really fascinating possible insight that might help us think in actually a more ancient, biblical, and healthy way about what the church is. Oftentimes, our Western minds might struggle with a category like spiritual. Even among Christians, we may really struggle with doubts about things like cosmic spiritual forces, whether they be malevolent forces like sin or Satan, or the forces of God's good ordering in creation, the, the f- participating in something like this cosmic body of Christ. So we may struggle with that, and we may struggle with a word like spiritual, picturing something like fairies or the forced ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi. But what if we integrated the hyper-object framework into our understanding of cosmic spiritual struggle? Maybe it might even be able to help us grasp the existential reality of these powers, even if we can't fully grasp or agree on their ontological substance or structure. In recent times here in the U.S., much has been made about the dismantling of systemic racism, you know, especially on one side of the political spectrum or the powers of the deep state by those on the other side of that political spectrum. Both of these concepts function as hyper-objects. What is it that keeps the cycles of racial injustice or the corruption of government going? Can you point to one singular place and location and action and go, there it is, that's all of systemic racism, or that is the deep state. Can you, as an individual, go into the dragon's den of systemic racism and with a mighty fell of your sword kill that dragon? No. It's a hyper-object. It's not bound to a single location. It's a spiritual principality and power. It seems that almost everyone in America believes in either systemic racism or the deep state, just as there is consensus that the stock market exists. Most people would confess experiencing the presence of some sort of palpable tension or entity in the air, even if they've just been in something like I was outside of the Republican National Convention in 2008 or Or maybe they've been somewhere just before a huge fight or a riot was about to break out and they felt that thing. So why would we deny the existence of hyper-objects like sin or what the letter to the Ephesians calls the, quote, cosmic powers of this present darkness, quote, end quote, and the, quote, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, end quote. Many if not 
most non-Western cultures have very little problem acknowledging the existence of cosmic spiritual powers. That seems to be the one time in many churches, not charismatic churches, albeit, or Pentecostal churches, but, you know, generally evangelical or Protestant, uh, Lutheran churches, even those that are very uncomfortable with cosmic spiritual powers, the one time that they are probably more open to it is when the foreign missionary comes to town and has been in Tanzania someplace uh, where there may be uh, witch doctors or things like that, you know, and it's like we accept them in non-Western cultures. Talk to anybody that's spent any amount of time in those places like a foreign missionary. So other cultures don't seem to have a problem with it, just like the ancients didn't. So maybe they have long been acknowledging a reality that modern Western culture is just slowly coming around. It may be that the structure of narrative, and in particular the narratives of fantasy, science fiction, horror, and superhero stories might be the most helpful gateway for Western minds to be reopened to the possibility of an enchanted world. Perhaps few in our modern era did more to use fantasy as a means of exploring a world of cosmic spiritual powers and hyper-objects within a broader Christian narrative structure than J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Long before Timothy Morton proposed his hyper-object theory, which gained popular acceptance in the object-oriented school of ontological thought and among Behavioral scientists like John Verveke, Tolkien created the fantasy world of Middle-earth with a malevolent terrorizing force called Sauron who threatened the meager hobbit heroes of Lord of the Rings. While Sauron could arguably be considered a local entity, he functions much more like a hyper-object using objects like the ring and sentient agents as local manifestations of his power. Many people, even those with no upbringing in any Christian tradition, are familiar with the fantasy world of Narnia created by C.S. Lewis, but fewer people have properly engaged with what I actually think is a superior work of fantasy in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, at least that's what most people call it, the Space Trilogy. Lewis nestles within a narrative of science fiction, fantasy, and even political drama, a compelling picture of the very real power of cosmic spiritual forces. The protagonist in the series, Elwyn Ransom, goes on a fantastic journey through our solar system where he becomes aware of this cosmic struggle between spiritual principalities of both good and evil kind. Ransom, like many of us, starts off as a doubter in such fanciful tales of spiritual forces. And what makes this trilogy so compelling, especially for our consideration of hyper-objects and cosmic spiritual powers within the biblical literature in our post-Enlightenment world, is how Lewis is able to He's somehow able to make these spiritual entities work within our secularized frame. These spiritual forces, when you read about them and you go through the series, they, they don't feel like a separate reality we can compartmentalize as a possible figment of our imagination. 
No, they are both within our framework and yet not completely explainable just using the tools of a naturalist worldview. An even lesser known fact about this series was that Lewis intentionally set it within the same narrative universe as his good friend J.R.R. Tolkien. It's in the same universe as The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings saga, so there's a fun fact for you. You actually don't get this. This item isn't revealed until the third volume of the series, entitled That Hideous Strength. It's in this third volume, it's in That Hideous Strength, that Lewis supplies a new and very creative word to describe the spiritual beings and powers who have been present throughout the entire trilogy. He calls them macrobes. This is revealed in a dialogue between the characters named Mr. Frost and Mark Studdock. Frost is a character on the inner circle of the global conspiracy that's happening in the third volume, and he's obsessed with objective facts, and he, he tries to deny anything that contains what he perceives to be the slightest morsel of subjectivity. Studdock, on the other hand, Mark, is one of the central protagonists in the book, and he's concerned about his career advancement, and tries to make it into the elite academic social groups, which turn out to be, he doesn't know this right away, but they turn out to be the evil global conspiracy group in and of themselves. But as he does this, the, the interesting thing about Mark's character arc in this story is that he, he wrestles with these sorts of internal senses that he experiences that, that joining these groups, joining this elite academic social group may actually be a bad move. As Mark gains acceptance, more acceptance into that inner circle, the objective, fact-obsessed Mr. Frost reveals to him the existence of these macrobes. Listen to this section of the dialogue between Frost and Mark from the audiobook of That Hideous Strength. And now, please attend very carefully. You have probably not heard of macrobes. Microbes? said Mark in bewilderment. But of course, I did not say microbes. I said macrobes. The formation of the word explains itself. Below the level of animal life, we have long known that there are microscopic organisms. Their actual results on human life in respect of health and disease have, of course, made up a large part of history. Go on, said Mark. Ravenous curiosity was moving like a sort of groundswell beneath his conscious determination to stand on guard. I have now to inform you that there are similar organisms above the level of animal life. When I say above, I am not speaking biologically. The structure of the macrobe, so far as we know it, is of extreme simplicity. When I say that it is above the animal level, I mean that it is more permanent, disposes of more energy, and has greater intelligence. More intelligent than the highest anthropoids, said Mark. It must be pretty nearly human, then. You have misunderstood me. When I say it transcended the animals, I was, of course, including the most efficient animal, man. The macrobe is more intelligent than man. Frowningly, Mark studied this theory. But how is it in that case that we have had no communication with them? It is not certain that we have not. But in primitive times it was spasmodic, and was opposed by numerous prejudices. Moreover, the intellectual development of man had not reached the level at which intercourse with our species could offer any attractions to a macrobe. But though there has been little intercourse, there has been profound influence. 
their effect on human history has been far greater than that of the microbes, though, of course, equally unrecognized. In the light of what we now know, all history will have to be rewritten. The real causes of all the principal events are quite unknown to historians. That, indeed, is why history has not yet succeeded in becoming a science. Now, I don't want to spoil any of the other details of this book or the trilogy. I highly recommend that you check it out if you haven't before. But the question I want to pose is, is there any functional difference between C.S. Lewis's conception of macrobes in the space trilogy and hyperobjects? To my mind, there's very little, if any. Now, some may say that these are just symbolic ways of categorizing and personifying complex psychological forces or abstract ideas. Maybe distributed cognition theory, which proposes that knowledge isn't bound to a local individual, but it's distributed across space-time through shared objects, artifacts, or tools used in culture. Maybe that can just give us a scientific explanation that demystifies cosmic spiritual forces and makes them fit within a disenchanted frame. Or rather, what if cognitive science theories such as that one are really just a way of partially describing a reality that still transcends our categories? If nothing else, my hope is that this discussion might help us remain curiously open to the possibility that we participate in a cosmic drama that might transcend all of our current understandings of how reality works. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten about the Problem of Evil series. I'm still working on that. I'm also going to do a few other, I've got a few other ideas for some standalone episodes, as well as some Q&A episodes for our supporters on Patreon. Thank you all to each person in the Deep Talks Patreon community for your support. I, I'm just so blown away that you see enough value in what I'm doing to support it. Uh, I can't do it without you. I really can't. The time investment, the energy investment, um, you know, it's it, it's like teaching a class here. So I'm thank and I want to keep giving it away. So I'm thankful that those of you that see and believe in that vision are, are supporting it. Certainly, I'd love to invite you to participate. We have a goal of getting to 300 patrons, 300 patrons. And once we get to that point, I can certainly do, you know, we're close to weekly episodes. When we get to that point, we will have weekly episodes for sure. So I'd like to get to that point. I'd like to remain ad-free. I don't want to have promotional advertisements in these episodes. I just want to do this, give it away, and see if people think like it, that it's worth supporting. So thank you to those of you that do. Uh, it's been really exciting to see new people jump into that community where there's a bunch of other bonus things like the Q&A episodes, articles like the one I mentioned today, which will be available after this episode is released for patrons. We also have forum discussions and all sorts of other things that I think will be of additional benefit to you if you really want to go deeper into this stuff. I want to give an extra special thanks to BJ, Carolyn, Eli, Jesse, um, John Michael, Josie, Justin T, Luke H, Michael H, um, Michael, well, boy, we got two Michael H's now. <laughs> I'm gonna have to differentiate here. Um, so hopefully you don't mind I say your last name, Michael Hawk, and then Michael H, 
Michael P, Paul S, Paul R, Sam and Nicole, Sarah, Sean C, Stephen M, Taylor S, Tim K. Thank you all for your support. I thank you so much for your generosity. As always, I'd love to hear from each of you after you complete these episodes and go through them. Uh, I'd love to have dialogue with you. Right now, I'm just talking in my office into a microphone by myself. (laughs) And it's nowhere near as rewarding as when you guys actually reach back out with questions, comments, observations, even, you know, critiques and objections. I love, I love getting that stuff as well. So the best way you can do that is by getting involved in the Deep Talks Patreon community. I respond to every message over there. Otherwise, the second best option is reaching out to me on Twitter. That's the social media account I'm most active on. I also do have an Instagram page. You could follow me over there and a YouTube channel. I'm trying to do more on the YouTube side, which I can't quite pull off at this point. Again, hopefully when we get to that first tier 300 patrons, I can I can do a lot more on our, uh, our YouTube page with, you know, we're doing some theological evaluations of film and, um, you know, clips of prior conversations and episodes, all sorts of other fun things. So you can follow me on those places as well. But again, biggest thing for me, I want to have dialogue. And I'd actually love inviting especially those of you that are in the Patreon community to connect together. That's the purpose of the forum discussions um, is so that there could be some distributed cognition happening here that you can actually use this platform to have meaningful exchanges with other people, not just me, but people that might have similar interest in this subject matter. So I encourage you to do that as well. All right, well, until next time, I'm so thankful for this opportunity to share from my experiences and the things I'm learning with you. And I can't wait to hear from you. So until next time, we'll talk again soon.